this conference that will be here next Saturday. It's a conference on Sabbath rest and flourishing, and uh, it is free. Childcare is free. Lunch is free. So it's like a six-hour date. So you should come. If you are busy, if you are thinking, I don't have time for this, this is probably for you. Okay, this is probably the conference for you. And uh, I, I went through this conference, as I told you, and uh, I really wish, for those of you that are in, in graduate school and seminary, I wish I had encountered this teaching when I was in graduate school. Uh, it, it could have helped me be a more healthy follower of Christ, husband and father. So um, registration closes today. You can get the link on the front page of our website if you don't have it in your, in your mail. But there's still, there's still seats available. You should plan to come if at all, all possible. It will be outstanding. Um, but as Daniel mentioned, we're going to continue today in our series on uh, uh, mentors in prayer. We'll be looking at one of the prayers of Paul. But let me begin by retelling a story Brian Wilkerson tells. is really insightful. He says, uh, years ago when our kids were young, we were out at a themed restaurant with TVs all over the walls, playing cartoons with no sound. And our youngest son, who was about four at the time, had his eye glued to the TV screen. He was watching a continuous loop of Roadrunner cartoons. Okay? And he's watching as Wiley Coyote strapped on the uh, rocket-propelled roller skates or shot himself out of a cannon or launched himself from a giant slingshot in pursuit of the elusive roadrunner. And after watching intently for a long time, he says, my son had an epiphany. Without taking his eyes off the screen, he quietly announced to our family, no matter what he does, he's never going to get the chicken. As, as I read that, I thought, you know, this is, kind of, this is kind of the mantra of some of our days, isn't it? This is what life feels like some days. Um, no matter what we do, we're, we're never going to get the chicken, you know? Um, to put it another way, some days it feels like we're never going to be satisfied. I mean... Deep down, in here, at the core of who we are, no matter how much we do, no matter how hard we try, some days it just feels like we're on a treadmill, and we never get anywhere, not really. And we buy the stuff that promises joy and satisfaction, and sometimes it's fancy, really expensive stuff. And yet it never really delivers, at least it never really delivers anything lasting. And, uh, we, we try to serve and honor and even know God and we come up short, we come up unsatisfied, we come up chickenless, right? Um, so how, how do we catch the chicken? How do we... How do we find satisfaction in our souls, deep, deep down, in here? How do we even pray about that? Now, Jesus encourages us to be sure 
to pray about all kinds of things. You know, daily bread, deliverance from evil, forgive us from sins. All these things we are urged, taught, commanded by Jesus to pray about. But how do we pray about the satisfaction of our souls? And um, thanks be to God that the Apostle Paul is our mentor in, in this kind of thing. And the prayer that we want to look at today is precisely this kind of prayer. It's a, it's a prayer for satisfaction. Um, and it's rooted, it's found in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. If you'd like to open your Bibles there, that's where we'll be the rest of the morning. And I'd like to pray for us as we, as we do that. So bow with me, please. Father, have mercy on us. Be wildly good to us. Lavish on us what we don't deserve. Corral wandering minds and bent hearts. Bring us, bring us to you so that we might know that you, the love of Christ, is what truly satisfies. Jesus, teach us how to pray about such things. We ask in, in your great name. Amen. Right. In Ephesians, Paul is writing a letter from prison in Rome to a church in a place called Ephesus. And the front end of his letter, Paul is, uh, the first two, even the early part of the third chapter, Paul is reminding them of the very, the very best of news and that it's for them. He says things like this, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And, and as you read the book, the early chapters, these first two, three chapters of the book of Ephesians, you realize it's not something that's just done for an individual it's a, it's a coming together of people from, from all peoples, um, from all, all different kinds and races of people are brought together as Christ is building his church. Um, again, from chapter 2, through him, through Christ, Paul writes, we both have access, both meaning Jews, Paul's a Jew, he's writing to Gentiles, to non-Jews, and he says, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, those of you who aren't Jews, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So by his death, Christ has made us one. This is bigger than race. It's bigger than culture, it's bigger than age, it's bigger than gender. Um, we are all one in Christ. And Now, after, the, after these first three chapters, the, the latter end of the book tips away from belief and focuses more on behavior. Okay? Paul moves from describing how, by the love and grace of Christ, all different sorts of people, Jew and Gentile, are made one in Christ, um, now he's encouraging them how that ought to shape 
them, how that ought to be manifest in their lives. And so he writes things like this. In the latter part of the book, this is chapter 5, he says things like this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So now he's saying, live out this love with which you've been loved. But before he gets to these last three chapters where he's telling us essentially how to live out our faith, how to live out the love which, with which we've been loved, um, there's a tipping point in the book of Ephesians. Um, it's as though Paul senses there's something that he has to do to move from um, doctrine to, to practice, that there's something he needs to do for us to move from just what we believe to what we do. And at this point, suffering in chains in Rome, Paul drops to his knees and he prays. And uh, I want you to know that this is not some ancient prayer just for people in Ephesus, you know, in the first century. This prayer is for us. This, this prayer is recorded in the Bible so that we can, we can pray it for one another. We can pray it for ourselves. So today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply these words directly to us. Um, it's there to teach us how to pray prayers that satisfy our souls, and out of that, enable us to love as Christ. So look with me, starting in verse 14 of chapter 3, that kind of tipping point in Ephesians that moves us from what we know to, to, to living it out. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And so, Paul is, um, he's mentoring us here in how to pray. This is, this is a beautiful example of how you and I should should pray with this this language when he says for this reason he's picking up it's like back in verse one of chapter three he says the exact same thing for this reason it's as though he started to pray then got distracted had some more teaching to do and now he's back to it for this reason the reason that is the basis of paul's prayer is the good news that he has just elaborated on um, about what christ has done for them by his death on the cross so the, the reason that he's being prompted to pray, it's this kind of stuff. Back in that first part of the book. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as son through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and, and insight. This is the reason that Paul bows. You picture it in your mind. Paul's in chains in Rome. And it's as though he just stops and he has to drop to his knees. And he knows he's compelled to pray. And to pray this prayer for the church in Ephesus and for us. And he starts it by praying to God as Father. And and to address God as Father is to be drawn to Him in, in love. You know, it's, it's the way Jesus taught us to pray, right? 
We pray the Lord's Prayer. We start as Jesus taught us. Our Father who art in, in heaven. Um, and Jesus taught us that rooted in Father is a good and generous idea. And it, he says in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? This is core to what Jesus says is the teaching behind calling God Father when we pray, that he's good and loving, and he loves to give good gifts. When we pray, that is who we are coming before, our gracious Heavenly Father. And yet in Paul's day, um, Father was not just um, a good and gracious giver. He was also an authority. Okay? He was an authority figure. You're coming to one who's an authority over you. And that's why Paul kneels okay, when he prays to the Father. Kneeling is a posture that expresses humility. I mean, think about it. Even in our day, you would not kneel before just anyone, would you? Right? I mean, probably one of the most preeminent ways, times that you will hear, hear about or even see someone kneel is a setting like this. Uh, you're at a really nice restaurant, and you notice across the way there's a young man who has dropped to one knee in this restaurant, and he has a small box and he's pleading with the woman that he has asked to dinner, okay? And you know, at that moment, he is bowing down before authority, right? <laughs> right? He, he is bowing down before the only one who can grant his request, okay? More, more than he knows, more, more than he knows. He is desperate, he is needy, he is hopeful, um, and he is pleading with her for a grace undeserved, okay? That's what kneeling represents, okay? And so, seriously, when we kneel, when we pray, we are, we are saying with our bodies, I am low, and you are great, God, okay? Almost all postures in prayer speak of this. When we lift our hands... We are exalting God. We are, we are lifting our hands in need to a God who's far greater than us. He's, a, he's above us. But kneeling is, is one of those postures um, that represents this well. Um, and and let, me, let me encourage you. Um, you should kneel from time to time when you pray. Not... Not when you're driving, but from time to time, you should kneel. Okay? It's a biblical posture for prayer. It's good for us. It reminds us who's low and who's high when we pray. Okay? And I want to give you full permission to kneel when we gather here in worship. When, when there's, you know, our songs, our prayers. If you want to kneel during the singing, yes, yes, you can do that. 
you, when we have collected prayer together in the weeks that are ahead, Daniel will be leading us in some collected prayer times, and he'll, he'll say, let's bow low, church. Let's kneel, and you are welcome to kneel. You don't have to kneel. Sometimes there's not room to kneel. Sometimes you're not physically able to kneel, or you just don't want to kneel. Okay? But you can. It's okay. Sitting is not the only acceptable posture for prayer in the Bible or here in the church. Okay? So... It's a good, Paul's teaching us how to pray to, to the good and great Father as we bow before him, we kneel, okay? at least in our hearts, if not in our bodies. So, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Okay? It's not like God is a directory of names and a naming book that that passes this out. This is, this is a, he's, he's talking about the richness of the source of, of God. He answers prayer from, from, the, from the riches of his glory, he's going to say in just a minute. Okay. Paul, matter of fact, let me, uh, let me skip over to this next slide and read a little bit more. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You know, Paul is, is praying to a really rich source here. He answers, God answers prayer from, from the riches of his glory. That's what God is drawing on. It's a limitless supply of wealth. He's able to meet every need. As Paul's going to write explicitly about elsewhere, he's going to say, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Same expression. He is dipping into the riches of his glory to answer your prayers. Now, Back in January, uh, I went to India to visit a handful of Northwake families that are living and, and, and serving there. And I went to Calcutta with our friend Andy, who, who lives there. Um, Andy was just in town this week. We went to this uh, Hindu temple to, to pray for those who were at the temple. And a really dark place spiritually. And outside of the temple... Um, there were beggars everywhere, everywhere. And Andy, uh, Andy lives there, and he's been there a number of times. That they actually know Andy by name, which if you ever met Andy, isn't it surprising? He's the friendliest guy on the planet. And, and the guys who work at the temple, they know Andy. And so he knows the system there. And so before we went in, we stopped at a little uh, vendor outside, and we filled our pockets with biscuits right, so that we could give to the beggars because he knew we were going to, because we were uh, white, uh, they would associate us with wealth, and they would beg from us. And so they did. And we're, we're passing out, me and Jay Burke and Andy are passing out biscuits. People would come up to us, and we would pray for them in Jesus' name, and we would give them a biscuit. And then our pockets were empty. And we were done. Okay, sorry, I got nothing. That never happens to God. You never bow your knees before the Father, and go to him, and he says, oh, man, I got, I got, I got nothing. 
Never happens. It's from the riches of his glory, his limitless glory, that he answers the most, the most heartfelt, most urgent of our prayers. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So to this father, Paul prays that out of these unlimited resources, he will strengthen the church. He will strengthen us with power through his spirit. Paul is praying for, for us to be empowered by the spirit of God in our inner being. And, and empowerment is the spirit's specialty, it seems. He is often shown as a source of power for God's people. Famously, our study of the book of Acts, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth as a result. The Spirit empowers this little band of believers at the beginning of the book of Acts to take the gospel to the end of the earth. A, a process. We, we are still resting and trusting in the Spirit's empowerment to this very day. The gospel spreads by the Spirit's power. The book of Romans. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The spirit, Paul is showing us, is the power behind the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul is invoking some serious power as he prays here. He's praying that the Spirit will empower us. He will empower us in our inner being. Um, it says, in our inner being, I don't have that scripture up there, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He wants the power of the Spirit to be brought to bear on our inner being, he says, on our inside. Paul prioritizes what's inside as he prays. Um, elsewhere, he's going to write it this way. He's going to say, we don't lose heart when we suffer. He's saying, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul's focus in his praying is on what's on the inside, not what's on the outside. This is contrary to us. Okay? We are an, an outside-oriented culture. That's our focus. Um, case in point, uh, there, a number of years ago, there's a, a lady, her name uh, is uh, Hainal Ban. And she is Australian, and she decided she was tired of being short. She's five foot one inches tall, and she was tired of being made fun of for being short, and she's convinced that her height was the sole reason she wasn't being taken seriously in the professional world. But what do you do about your height? Well, she found a solution in Russia. According to an article in the Times of London, Russian doctors agreed to break both her legs 
in four places and stretched them slowly for one millimeter a day for nine months. After all the breaking and stretching, Ban wore plaster casts for three additional months to make the changes permanent. The whole process cost her $40,000. And in the end, she grew three inches. Three inches. She insists that more importantly, she gained respect, quickly pointing out that she is now a city councilwoman in Australia, all five foot four of, of her. Right? When asked by a Times reporter if she would pursue further cosmetic enhancements, she said, I haven't made a decision on whether I will in the future or not. I know I'll get wrinkles, put on weight, and I'll even shrink as I get older, so we'll see what happens. But I'm not fixated on self-image. Yeah, right. Right. Okay. But this is the world we live in. Image is everything, right? Um, Paul is teaching us that we must learn how to pray about the inner being, about what's on the inside. Yes, yes, pray for daily bread. Pray for a better job. Pray for a parking space close to the store. But learn how to prioritize in your praying what's on the inside. Okay? Lifeway, I think these days, exists to do studies, mostly surveys. And so here's another Lifeway survey on what people typically pray for. Um, mostly, 82% pray for family and friends. Other things, uh, close second, my own problems and difficulties uh, I pray about good things that have occurred. I, uh, a little less than half of people pray about their sin. And they pray for those in natural, God's greatness, my future prosperity. People of other faiths or no faith, is, we're trickling down, government leaders. Down here, 5% pray for celebrities or people in the public eye. Um, I'm hoping that pastors do not fit into that category, okay, where 5% of the people are praying for their they're pastors. You should put me up here in the friend category. And I need about 82% of you at least to be praying for me. Um, but there's not a lot up there about praying what's going on on the inside. Some of them could be, but not very explicitly. There's not a whole lot going on on what's going on on the inside. And Paul is showing us, he's calling us to pray that we would be strengthened deep down in here at the core of our being. And Paul has perspective on this precisely because he's in prison. The outside has been stripped away from him. He's riding in chains. He's, he says he's riding in suffering. And his priorities are clear. He prays about the, about the inside. And I, I see how this prioritization happens in the life of, of you all as you suffer. There's some, there some people in our church who are suffering great, greatly now. Um, they have um, illnesses and such that, that are that bear the marks that could be suffering for a lifetime. 
at a level most of us won't, won't experience. And uh, they send out emails uh, in the form of prayer requests and updates. And uh, they are like gold. Because these are people who are learning that God is doing his great work on the inside. Here's an example. One of them writes, uh, Wednesday was an overwhelming, emotional, and tiring day. But it was made more bearable by the many. She's talking about you by the many who willingly and sacrificially watched our kids, shuffled them from one place to another, provided meals, prayed and sent verses to bring our minds back to truth. Thank, thank you, she says, thank you. What we face is monumental. There seems to be bad news at every corner and it's a nightmare in fast forward. We've been told that we don't have enough faith. And we need to pray more. But we know that's not it for us. Troubles and affliction come to everyone and there is no purpose in it. Excuse me. She says, there is a purpose in it. Rather, No doubt it's painful, but the hope of Christ and his reasons for suffering allow us to live differently. How can good come to, from bad? She says, it's a mystery, but it's also an anchor in suffering. To me, the most inspiring and beautiful stories are those that come from ordinary people who believe this very thing that Jesus is worth suffering for. It will be worth it. We have to tell ourselves that all the time because we are very forgetful and can sometimes see no further than the dark clouds of hardship. Okay. That's, that's one of your North Wake sisters writing about her suffering, the family, her family's suffering. See, suffering has a way of, of helping us see the priority of, of the inside. We must, we must, we must pray for strength in our inner being on the inside. And this then is, is what Paul prays. He says, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, he says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He prays to the Father that the Spirit would strengthen us on the inside so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. The whole Trinity is involved in this prayer. Now, because he's writing to Christians, to believers, in whom Christ already dwells, this, this can be um, a bit confusing. And I think perhaps the best way to think of it He's not praying that they, there would be an initial indwelling of Christ in the believer. That already exists. But he's praying for a continual and effective presence of Christ in us through faith. That is, as our faith grows, Christ would increasingly make himself at home in us and affect change in us. Steph and I have lived in the same house for about 24 years. We are, we are the poster children for not being upwardly mobile. We just stayed there. Okay, we just moved in and we, and we stayed there. But as we have lived there for 24 years, we have affected that house. Okay. Sometimes in bad ways, but often in, in good ways, we have affected that house. Um, we added an upstairs when, when we hit five children in, in a little house. We added an upstairs. And then as the children left, 
we added a screen porch because we could. <laughs> and we replaced the countertops and we replaced the carpet with hardwoods here and there and we redid bathrooms. I, you know, I think everything in our house, our little house, has been changed except the bathroom tubs and the fireplace, which I'm content with. Okay? We have dwelled there. And we have affected, we have changed that house to make it a place, the place we desire it to be, a place where we're, we are happy to live. Paul is praying that the power of the Spirit would increase our faith such that Christ would make himself at home in us and change us. In here, inside, in our souls. And so this is how we need to pray. We need to pray that God would strengthen our inner being, our hearts, our souls. Um, John Ortberg writes in a, in a book that's a tribute to Dallas Willard. He re recounts a conversation with Dallas Willard. And he's, Dallas says to John Ortberg, the most important thing in your life, he says, is not what you do who you become. That's what you will take into eternity. You are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. To which Ortberg responds, huh? And so Dallas answers, you are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. That's the most important thing for you to know about you. You should write that down, John. You should repeat it regularly. Brother John, you think you have to be someplace else or accomplish something more to find peace, but it's right here. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. Your soul is not just something that lives on after your body dies. It's the most important thing about you. It is your life. And Paul is teaching us this is what we need to pray about. When we pray for ourselves, when we pray for our church, when we pray for our families, this is what we need to be praying about. Not to the exclusion of other things, but perhaps at the priority, at the center of our prayers, even at the, we pray about the center of our being, that Christ would dwell there in power and change us in here, who we are. Paul continues, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And this is kind of where this long, rambly prayer all ends up. In Paul's language as he's writing, it's one long sentence. And so sorting out how it all fits together is complicated, but it all just kind of dumps out here. That we would know what it's meant not to know how to love others. That's derivative. But at the core, that we would know that we are loved by Christ. Um, I love the way the Apostle John writes about it in Revelation chapter 1. It's one of my favorite verses. He talks about Jesus and he says, when he describes Jesus, he says, To him who loves us and freed us from our sins... By his blood. Jesus is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins 
by his blood. Jesus is that one. He loves us that much that he has set us free from our sins by his blood. This is the blood running down the cross. This is the blood that's flowing from the, the whip marks on his back and the crown of thorns on his brow from the spear thrust deep into his side. He suffered and died for us. He is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And Paul says, again, he wants us to have strength. He wants us to have the strengthening work of the Spirit such that we truly grasp and comprehend with all the saints. Okay? Again, it's not just an individual thing. It's a team sport. Okay? He wants us to get it as a church. He wants us to grasp this, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for us. He wants us to know that we are loved deeply in every way possible by Jesus. You are the beloved of God. He loves you. It's a bumper sticker that's almost lost meaning. Jesus loves you. Uh, okay, tell me something I don't know. No, no. He loves you. Christ loves you in a way that Paul is just grasping for a way to comprehend it. How He wants you to know how wide it is and how, how long it is and how tall it is and how deep it is. He wants you to know what you cannot know, how much you are loved by Christ. Because you can't even imagine. Kevin Young writes about a time when he was at this, watching the Special Olympics. He was actually there. And it came time for the 400-meter dash at the Special Olympics. And uh, the runners are being put and helped to their marks. And as he watched, he says, a gentleman in a three-piece suit jumped up in the stands in front of me and began yelling, Lenny, Lenny! And an overweight, middle-aged man with Down syndrome looked up in the direction of the voice. Gun sounds, runners leap forward, all except Lenny, who was dead last and losing ground. He had a preoccupation with his hands, which he wrung furiously as he tried to make his way around the track. Pointing to him, the gentleman in front of me turned around and addressed my section of the entire crowd. That's my son, Lenny. Isn't he doing great? When Lenny reached the last turn on the track, the other runners had already finished, and the gentleman began to shout encouragement to his son, throwing his fists in the air in a triumphant gesture. Great job, Lenny. Way to go, son. Keep going. You're doing great. He turned to my section again and reminded us all that his son was about to finish. We applauded dutifully, he says, uh, feeling somewhat embarrassed. And when Lenny crossed the finish line, the man made his way down to the track, hugged his son, who was exhausted, drooling, and still wringing his hands. And Kevin writes, while I watched them embrace, I began to weep. As I thought about what I saw, it seemed as though God was saying to me, you're like Lenny, 
in this race. I have called you into it. You're challenged, perplexed, far behind the pack. Most days, you're a pitiful pile of exhaustion. But I'm here cheering you on and so much more because I love you the way that man loves his son. How wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of God in Christ for you, for you. See, we need to pray that God would help us grasp that we are his beloved. See, the mission of the church hinges on this. You see it in the book of Ephesians. It all hinges on this. Nothing gets enacted without this. So look again at those verses at the latter part of Ephesians. Ephesians 5. Be imitators of God. That's another way to say our mission, I think. Be imitators of God in the world. As beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If we don't get how God loves us in Christ, then if we don't get that we are his beloved children, then we can't imitate it. And that's what we're called to do and to be. John simply says, we love because he first loved us. It's the only reason we love God back. It's the only reason we love others. We understand that he loves us. And he says, I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And these are very puzzling things. I want you to know what you really cannot know. It's just that great. It's just that wonderful. You're never going to exhaust it. So we must pray. It's not something you can take a course, a master's degree course in and get. We have to pray about this. And then we will be filled with all the fullness of God. That expression can have the idea of that then we'll be all we're meant to be. We'll be mature in Christ. We'll be like Christ. But it also has the idea of being satisfied in God, that we will be filled with all the fullness of God. We'll be satisfied with all the fullness of God. We'll know how much he loves us. And, we, and then we catch the chicken, right? Deep down in here, we're satisfied because we begin to get that every day, every single day, we start our day thinking, I'm the beloved of God. He, he loves me this day. Come what may, I am loved by God. In an extraordinary way, if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is your story. This is your truth, your reality. And if you're on the outside looking in, this is the reality you long for. This is the only place you'll ever be satisfied is to know the love of the Father this way. So I start every day with a prayer these days. It's, it's from Psalm 90, verse 14. Maybe some of you want to join me in it. And I pray, God, satisfy me in the morning 
with your steadfast love, that I may rejoice and be glad all my days. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. This is my prayer. You, you can pray it too. Um, and you can, pray this, you can pray this for our church. You wonder sometimes, how should I pray for my pastor? Pray Psalm 90, verse 14. That's about all you need to know. Pray that. Pray that for our elders. Pray that for your small group leader. Pray that we would be satisfied with the love of God for us. And that that would permeate our days with joy. It's not bad leadership to sit under, right? So it will benefit you as well. You can pray this for your children. You know, we pray for so many things for our kids. We pray that they would pass the class, pass the math class, just let them pass. Or that they would make the honor roll. Or that they, they, would, make, they would make the team. Or that they would, they would do this or be that or do this. But as parents, what we need to be praying, perhaps above all other prayers at the core, is that our children would know that they are loved by God in Christ. And you should pray this for you. Lord knows, if you don't know how to pray for yourself, pray this prayer for you. God, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad all my days. And then listen to how Paul ends his prayer. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's a doxology. It's like an explosion of praise at the end of this. He can't contain himself. But it's not unrelated. Okay? It's not a separate thing. And he's teaching us here that we pray to a God who is truly able to fill us up with the love of Christ to satisfy us far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power of the Spirit at work within us. And when that begins to happen to us, we give glory to God. The church and Jesus give him glory throughout all generations, even forever and ever. And this love, it's for you. Every day, it's for you. And Paul says, pray for that love. Pray to walk in it this day. Pray to know how wide it is for you today and how, how long it is for you today. How high it reaches, how deep it goes for you today. Meditate on it. Reflect on it. Start your day with it. End your day with it. Have lunch with it. Pray and ask God to help you grasp, to know a love that can't be fully known. This is how we catch the chicken. This is how we get satisfaction. By grasping how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for us. So the worship team's going to come and they're going to lead us in a closing declaration of that love together as church family. And just a minute or two into the first song, we're going to stop and have a time of prayer for any of you who sense that this is what you long for. You want to know God this way. You want to know his love more. And so as the team starts, once we start singing, if you'll make your way down to the front here, we'll, we'll have a time where um, 
I'll just lead in prayer. For those of you who sense that God has put in your heart a real longing and desire for this, okay? So once we start singing, make your way down, and then Daniel will step out of the song for a second and we'll pray for you. So let's stand. Let's worship our great, loving Father together.